0: Welcome book nerds to another episode of the gene book nerd podcast on this episode we'll be speaking with Michael Schilf the writer and director of the film The Fixer the film follows Jack Cross an extorted mafia enforcer who must partner with the femme fatale hired gun who murdered his wife in order to save his daughter and liberate himself from his employer a sadistic LA crime boss I'm sure there will be a lot to talk about with this film. So, let's get right into it. Great to have you on the podcast, Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: My pleasure. Happy to be here. (laughs)
0: Please tell us a little about yourself and your film.
1: Yeah, my name is Michael. I've uh, been, I graduated from USC Film School. I have an MFA in screenwriting and For years, I was raising a family and working as a writer, uh, ghostwriting, um, writing uh, television commercials, writing, doing a lot of work in the advertisement world, um, doing uh, treatments for directors. And once sort of my raising of kids requirements um, were over, my, my, my oldest kids are 21 now, I wanted to start having creative control of content instead of just being a work for hire and so last uh two three years i've jumped full steam into doing that um and the fixer is a short film that i wrote directed produced and executive produced and um it is a proof of concept short film that is a standalone piece with a beginning middle and end um I wanted to make a film that I could use uh, to showcase my uh, my work in the film festival circuit, but also um, with the greater goal of using that to help pitch and market the feature film version. So the film itself, that's why we call it a proof of concept. Um, even though it is a standalone, um, it, it's designed to leave you on a cliffhanger wanting more Um, and currently I'm, that's what I'm doing. currently working on, on the feature version.
0: Nice. Well, I watched, uh, I watched the proof of concept video last night and I can definitely tell you that it definitely left me wanting more. I was, it's kind of one of those, like, I just started really getting into it and then it ended and I was just was like, ah, now I have to wait for the whole thing. (laughs)
1: Like
0: I wanted to, I wanted to watch the whole thing right then and there. You, You had me hooked. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I, I, if I had the, the, the finances to make f- the entire feature, I certainly would have done that. But as you know, you know, making anything um, is, is a huge challenge. I, I would say, uh, well, Hitchcock said the three most important parts of a film are the script, the script, and the script. I would agree with that, partly. I would say you absolutely have to have tremendous material especially in the indie filmmaking world. But the other part is money. You need good material and you need money. If you have great material and you have no money, you can't make anything. If you have lots of money and no material, you really can't make anything good. So um, if I had millions of dollars, yeah, I would have been able to deliver a feature. <laughs> but that just wasn't the case.
0: I feel on that. I wish I had millions of dollars too because then I could also help you finance the film and get to see the whole thing. But, uh, well, I'll tell you, yeah, that is the case on my end. I'll
1: tell you, the, the, the secret to success is picking rich parents.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, uh, I didn't have any choice in that. So. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah, like, I, that,
1: that was not in my car. So I, I chose poorly when I, when I was in the process of conception, so.
0: So can you tell us a little bit about the plot of the film, The Fixer?
1: Yeah, absolutely. The Fixer is a crime action, uh, drama. And the main character is, his name is Jack Cross, and he's an extorted mafia enforcer who, uh, has to partner up with the femme fatale hired gun who murdered his wife. Um, in order to save his daughter and liberate himself from this sadistic Los Angeles crime boss um, that, you know, has extorted him. Um, basically, it's a fictional version of the Mexican mafia in the underworld and the city elements of Los Angeles. So, um, you know, a good reference might be think like uh, Sons of Anarchy is really a fictional version of the Hells Angels. The fixer, it, it, at least the world and, um, you know, the associates that that Jack Cross is dealing with. It's all a fictional version of of the Mexican mafia.
0: OK, gotcha. That's I think that's a pretty good analogy for uh, for film. So I can definitely see that. What was the process like coming up with the story and, you know, and, you know, figuring out where it was gonna be said and the characters and what was that whole process like and did you have to do any uh, in-depth research on kind of like the, the way the mafia works or crime syndicates or anything like that and what was
1: um, yeah okay that's like five questions all at once so I mean, uh, <laughs> let, let me let me do my best and then I may forget a couple things so just remind me if I'm missing something um, no so problem. Let's start first with, um, how. I guess you asked me, well, how did I come up with the idea? Like, what's the inception or the seed? Yeah. Uh, okay, so I have a producing partner. His name is is Chase Cooker, and we did a film last year called um, Sworn, and which is a totally different thing. Um, it was really fun. We actually shot the whole thing on green screen, uh, but it's a fantasy action adventure series that we shot. Uh, as a proof of concept for a a television series that we created. Anyway, um, he he called me up in May of 2019 and he said, hey, you know, um, I think, you know, to keep the momentum going, we should, um, let's do another short. Uh, It's nothing big, something small, you know, just so that we can keep momentum. And I said, okay, that's a great idea. And I said, you know, give me a day. I'm going to shoot you a bunch of ideas. Uh, So I put I I got like 20 ideas. I sent them to him and I told him, I said, uh, all right, pick your top three. I'll do the same. A number of them in order, you know, uh, is your favorite to your least favorite of those top three. And um, he did that. I did that. And then when we delivered our answers, it was so easy because we both had picked the same. Idea for number one, so it's like there was the no, there was no argument. There was we didn't even have to have a conversation about it. We're like, okay, well that's what we're gonna do, and have that happened to be the fixer. Um, now, how did I get the idea? It's pretty funny actually. Um, you know, we're always connected online. You know, with our smartphones. I mean, they're an extension of our bodies, and I try not every day, but you know, I I, I am mindful of trying to separate myself from that, and so. Um, when I can, and I was at a a little place by my house that's called Chano's, a little, you know, a little greasy taco joint. And sometimes when I'm eating there, I will literally like leave my phone in the car just so it's not a distraction. And I do that just so it forces me to be more observant um, of my environment. And so I'm sitting there eating, you know, lengua and carnitas tacos and, and drinking a Mexican Coke, and I'm just watching people. Come in and out, in and out, and mostly the clientele are uh, Latinos. And um, there was this—I uh, would say like ninety percent—are Latinos. And then there was this white guy, um, big dude, kind of you know, kind of menacing looking, but not not too too menacing, but certainly he he was carrying sort of a uh, an energy like don't mess with me. You know what I mean? But then when he entered, I noticed that he just did some nods uh, to some of the Mexican guys that were sitting at a the table. They didn't speak to each other, You know, there was no conversation, and but there was this understanding th- that either of respect or maybe they knew each other. And that was really the spark. And I was thinking like, okay, that's interesting. What if there was a non-Hispanic, non-Mexican, um, who was not only part of the Mexican mafia, but he was accepted fully, adopted, and maybe even had risen through the ranks to have a certain amount of, of clout or power within this world. And it wasn't really at all about ethnicity. It was just about, um, you know, brotherhood within this crime organization. And so then um, I went home. And I wrote a draft, and that was actually the the easiest part. I uh, took me about two days. I wrote. Uh, took me first draft was literally you know two days, maybe like. When I write, I usually try to do banker hours. Um, you know, some people will tell you write every day. I don't do that at all. Um, I but when I do write, I I I put in the time. Okay, so for me, I do a lot of thinking i like I guess the best way for me to describe what writing is, is kind of like painting um, when you're painting a house, not not acrylic or oil painting. But when you're painting a house, you're really only holding a brush about 20 percent of the time, um, not about 80 percent of the time you're preparing the surface for that brush. And so what a painter, a house painter really is, is a preparer of paint. And so writers are the same we're only technically writing like fingers on keyboards, at least for me, about 20% of the time. But what are we doing the other 80% of the time? It's all that critical thinking. It's you know, sitting at channels and watching people. It's you know, f- figuring out narratives. It's understanding uh, depth of character. Once you've done all that preparation, when you sit down, if you've done that preparation, when you sit down, it c- actually comes out pretty fast because you're so prepared. So, you know, two days is is very misleading, I suppose, because, you know, what what I'm not including in, in that quantifiable number is all of the time, the hours spent, you know, thinking about things like that. And then, of course, the rest of it is rewriting and making it better. Um, I think your other question was like, what about research? And, um, yeah yeah that would that, that's actually kind of a uh connected to um your question about casting so maybe it's better to answer that one first okay. uh, so i wrote the short having done actually no research at all <laughs> <laughs> so uh, now i mean at least not like academic research. I wasn't, you know, reading articles about the Mexican mafia and so forth. But I do have some life experience. And that obviously is research. So um, uh, I married, my wife is Mexican, 100%. You know, her family is from Mexico, well, not uh, from Mexico, but their second, her parents are second generation, but you know, very much a Mexican family. So I've been around mexican so just to give you an idea and i'm caucasian uh you know western european mutt i'm a whole mix of a bunch of stuff so i'm I'm just american white guy basically okay um anyway so like it would be totally normal for me to be uh at my wife's uh parents home uh sitting in the garage with her father um watching a boxing match on the television in the garage, surrounded by thirty Mexican dudes in their sixties and seventies, and me—like that was kind of how I've I've been living for like twenty years. So as far as like understand, not, that's not Mexican mafia at all, but understanding like Mexican culture, understanding j- just you know the, the small little details of of how how that entire um, community interact specifically in los angeles i i understood that already and um her family lives in echo park um so you know i, I spent a lot of time in echo park and in that part of los angeles before it was gentrified you know which it, it's definitely becoming now um anyway so when i wrote it originally i had danny trejo in mind and um so that whole process was very educational, um, exhausting, and ultimately rewarding because we got him. Uh, fortunately, I have a a manager, um, two managers through Bold Management, um, and and there's no way I would have been able to even reach out to him without representation because you need gatekeepers, right? So oh, like, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it would unless like he was literally my friend. You know what I mean? Like, you know. If my, yeah, I was, there's, if I was there's no way to to get yeah. in
0: contact with him. He's not exactly someone you could just you know get his number on Facebook or something and give him a call.
1: No way. And and the, and I knew what I was getting into because Danny Trejo. Um, you know anyone that was in Los Angeles knows this, but uh, people listening maybe outside of of L.A. might not realize. You know, um, if they hear Danny Trejo, they might think like machete or something. Okay, but really. Yeah, he's an actor, sure, yeah, absolutely true, but way more than that. Danny Trejo is not just an actor, he's a brand, totally a brand, okay? Uh, he's got so many – his hands are in different things. Trejo's Tacos, he's got Trejo's Cerveza. You can go literally go to the grocery store and buy beer with his name on it. Uh, Trejo's Donuts, he just started his own uh, music label, and he – earlier this year, he um, launched his first album with uh, different – Kichano artists. Um so this guy is literally way bigger than just your average, you know, performer. And so his just to give you an idea, his agent has one client, him. Understandably, you know, because he's got so many different things going. And so um, we did, you know, what everyone, what anyone would do. Uh we sent out my my uh managers uh reached out to his agent. And started that process, and it's a long, slow process. It's it's a lot of back and forths, and um, you know, if I have something I want to deliver, I have to deliver that information to the manager. The manager then has to contact the agent, assistant. The agent's assistant has to tell the agent. The agent then has to tell Danny. then Danny has, to, you know what I mean? It's like it's always like that. So everything, a simple question, sometimes can take a week. You know what I mean?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's got to go through twenty different people. It's like my telephone. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes things get lost in translation because of that, a little bit. Um, Anyway, I, you know, I wasn't, I was hopeful, but I was not expecting him to say yes. I I realized there was a few, a lot of things, you know, not in my favor. Number one, I'm a first time, not a first time writer, but I'm a first time writer director. Um, Number two, he's a huge name and a brand and um, number three, uh, he might not be available. Number four, you know, this is a you know a low a, a sag uh, low budget project. Um, we don't have a huge budget. You know, w- would we be able to even afford what he costs? Like these are all things I recognized before I even began the process. But if you don't try, you've already failed. So I, I thought let's at least try. So w- what was real great was um, after a month or maybe like five or five weeks of all of this sort of back and forth kind of stuff. He said, yes. And, um, I won't get into like the actual dollars and cents, but that was all part of the conversation as well. But once he agreed, um, it really came down to one thing and, and it was the script. He loved the script. He said it was really good writing and you know, that I always knew that. And they always told me that at USC and that, you know, the, the the script itself, if it's good, if it's really good, uh, you know, it'll find its way and people will respond. And I'm sure it's true, you know, there's, cause there's so much bad writing and there's so, when you get, and when somebody gets a piece of material that really, you know, speaks to them, um, and it's, it's of high quality, uh, I think, you know, they recognize that. And so that was huge, you know, having, having that, um, right away, knowing that Trejo was impressed with the writing, gave me you know more confidence that I'd be able to execute the directing part. And I knew I'd be fine with the producing part because'm'm I'm, I'm, I've produced other things before and, and I'm also very analytical and pretty organized. Um, so so he said yes, so this was great. Once he said yes though, we had a different kind of problem, but it was a good problem. Originally, the budget for the film, it was gonna be fifteen thousand. But then once once we got him and his his fees were way more than we were gonna be able to afford, I knew okay, I have two options. I can just end this project now because we can't afford it based upon the original budget, or I can just be a producer and go out and get more money and you know expand to the the project's financial needs now that we have a A list star. So Of course, that's what I did. Um, I got the money necessary, and the project ballooned to 40,000 like overnight, pretty much. Once we got him, um, but what was so cool was you, yeah, once we got Danny attached, it was so much easier to get everybody else. Um, and so I would tell anybody, like, casting is huge. Uh, I would say that was the biggest learning lesson, and I, I, I don't know if I if I intrinsically knew this, or if I just, it was a happy accident that this happened to me. Um, but the $40,000 seems like a lot. But I, I had a, a friend who's a producer of mine go through everything we did if we were to pay full price. And, and she said it would have been a $120,000 production. So I tell you that because once we attached Danny, I was able to get high quality film people on all aspects, both sides of the camera, both in front and behind, because they wanted to be part of, of a production with Danny Trejo in it. So, you know, um, for example, my my director of photography, uh, my crew, um, vendors, everybody was willing to work uh, for lower rates because they wanted to be part of the project. Um, as an example, we needed Danny, you know, he's a he has a writer and there's lots of things that come along with with having him attached and you know one of the things is he needed his own private um, uh, uh, celebrity trailer and you know those are not cheap but because i have a connection with with uh, a vendor that has trailers and just ha- so happens he's a danny trejo fan he let me have the celebrity trailer for free just having to pay the hard costs like gas and 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 you know the pickup the drop off and so forth so what was so cool was even though getting danny cost us a lot more than we were expecting as far as uh talent it actually ironically ended up saving us way way more for what we got so this was great now um the next thing was of course get the lead because danny plays a a supporting character and we were i'm not gonna say the name but we were courting a very high profile actor um and we reached out to that actor. He was immediately interested. Uh, again, because of two now two things: Danny Trejo being attached and the script. Loved the script. Uh, had a number of phone calls. Had a you know each of which were like an hour. Uh, had a couple sit down face to face meetings. One of which lasted like almost three hours. And so we pretty much were we were looking golden. We were about a week away from principal photography. We had our actors. Uh, we had Danny. We had this high-profile lead um, that essentially said yes with that, but we hadn't like officially done the paperwork yet. In a week before principal photography, he got cold feet, and um, he was like, "I don't think I can do it." And so that now, now, and his reason was, uh, "I just can't believe that a white guy." would be able to not only be accepted in the Mexican Mafia, but rise to level, a certain level of, of power and authority. And I knew right away that wasn't a reality um, because it, it is possible, but I recognized really what this was, was just a, a way of him to cover his insecurities of playing the role. Um, this would have been a role because Jack Cross is a dark character that's very complex, and um, this actor has already been typecast as kind of the you know the big funny goofy guy, and it was an opportunity for him to redefine his career um, and to show that he's got other skill sets. And I really thought that you know this would have been a great opportunity for him, but he was scared and. So I thought, okay, I, don't, I can't afford to lose this. So I said, all right, let me do this. Let me Give me 24 hours, and I will deliver you a detailed document of not only why this is possible, but how it actually has already happened, that the idea that a white person could be accepted into the Mexican mafia. And he said, okay, fine. And so I did now, to answer your research question, uh, that's what I did. I went home and I did all I, like that. Now I was like deep in the Mexican mafia and I found out all of these things about like the racial tensions between uh, the Mexicans and African-Americans. And basically everyone hates everyone. The Mexicans hates, hate the whites and the, 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 the blacks hate the Mexicans and the Mexican hates the blacks. But the Mexicans hate the blacks more than the whites. And so the Aryan nation and the Mexican mafia created a, a truce in which well not really a truce, but a pact in which if any of e- anyone from within the prison system, if a Mexican or a white person was attacked by an African-American person, then they're required by this uh, agreement to for the Mexicans and the whites to help each other, to protect each other, uh, to fight against the blacks, blah, blah, blah. And there's all this stuff. There's like literally were meetings done. All this stuff was agreed upon years and years ago. So um, and I then discovered there is a white Croatian man from LA, his, name was, his, his uh, street name was Pegleg. And not only was he, uh, as a, you know, sort of a street kid that was hanging out with a bunch of Mexicans who w- eventually he joined the Mexican Mafia. So right away I was able to prove, yes, this is possible. Not only did Pegleg join the Mexican Mafia, but over a period of time, this was in this like the 70s, um, he rose through the ranks to the point where he became godfather of the Mexican mafia. This all happened. This is fact. This is true. So I'm like, oh, wow. per- yeah, yeah. I'm like, perfect. This is absolutely exactly what this actor needs. Because, you know, he has this question. I know it's coming from a place of insecurity and fear. But. Not only is it possible in a, in a fictional version, it really happened in real life. So uh, I put together this whole document I, and it was broken down into like, this is the real story, this is what happened, this is how it applies to the fictional version that we're telling and so forth. And I sent it to my manager and she was like, uh, I have two managers and they were both like, this is awesome, we love this. We sent it to the high profile actor we waited. And I said, I need to know, you know, I can't wait. And he eventually he passed within like two days. So now we had a major problem uh, because we were going to be shooting in five days. Now, why did he pass? Not because I was wrong, but because he was afraid he couldn't actually deliver the role. And in a way, even though that was a disaster and a nightmare in the in the short term, it was a blessing in disguise because if if he had shown up on set and didn't believe that he could actually do the part properly, then the whole thing would have been a disaster because, you know, he we wouldn't have he wouldn't have done a very good job. Um, yeah. OK, so now then, to the, then two things happen. We have this problem of, OK, we're going into principal photography in five days. We don't have a lead and I cannot push to shoot. Because if I push the shoot to a later date, I lose Danny because Danny is incredibly, uh, you know, his schedule is tight. And there was no other time for him to do this job, you know. So I had a, you know, producing problem. I have to find a lead now in less than a week because I can't change the time. Um, And so at this point, I hired a, a and a casting director, her name is Farrah West. She's awesome. And she hooked us up. And literally, I, never, I, I was blown away when we put out the casting call, uh, 1,500 people auditioned. <laughs> <Dang>. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, what? And that just <laughs> tells you, like how, how hungry actors are in LA and, and how many there are willing to do this. You know, uh, they want to work. And so, you know, we needed a casting director, obviously, because I didn't have time to go through 1,500 editions. She broke it down to like 30. Uh, these were all videotaped. You know, we, we didn't come, uh, they didn't come into an office or anything. There was no time. So these were all people, they you know, at home videoing themselves, uh, the sides that I had provided. She broke it down to 30 that she thought were good. That was great. And then I looked at those 30. I broke it down to like three that I thought were, you know, potentials. And then, you know, I had discussions with, uh, my producer and my other creative, um, uh, partners, but at the end of the day, it was my call. And so, um, then I decided, okay, of these three, I'm picking this guy and he was good. He was, he was really good. Um, and I felt, I felt real confident that we we're going to be able to, you know, overcome this hurdle. But thank God for Farrah West, my casting director, she said, "Okay, yeah, this guy's good. But I think there's one other person. Just let's wait one more day. Now, for me to wait one more day when we're going to be shooting in like now four days, that's very stressful. You know, and I said, well, I need to make a decision like now, you know, I need to make a decision yesterday. She said, trust me, wait one more day. So I did. I listened to her. And sure enough. Um, we got another audition in by Jesse C. Boyd. He was the last one to audition. I saw it, and it wasn't even close. It was like, okay, my number one is now a distant two. And I knew right away this is the guy. Thank God for Farrah West for telling me to wait. We, you know, we immediately got Jesse C. Boyd, and he was the lead, and, and that's the actor you see in the short, and, and I think he was phenomenal. Taylor made for that role. So now I'm feeling great. I'm like I got Danny Trejo. I've got everything's ready to go. We're we're shooting in you know three days or four days, whatever it was. uh, And I got my lead. We're all good now. My manager says, "Hey, remember that document you wrote for the high-profile actor who passed, but you know went into all this stuff, all the research stuff. I love that document. That is one of the best things you've ever written. Why don't we send it over to Danny Trejo's agent?" Because you're not going to have an opportunity to, to speak with him or rehearse with him before he shows up on set. But it would be like an extra piece of information to help him prepare for the role because it goes into like relationships between Jack Cross. Danny's character essentially is the uh, – well, not essentially. He is the father of Jack Cross's deceased wife. So this is his father-in-law. And the, the document that I had put together as far as the research element goes into that. And so she said, why don't we send it over? I said, okay, great. So we do. That was a horrible disaster. <laughs> because Danny then. Oh,
0: geez. Oh,
1: yeah. So then get, Danny gets this document. And, you know, I don't know if he didn't like read it carefully, if he just skimmed it or whatever. I don't really know. Because, you know, how people, they, they don't, lot of, people don't really read details. Right. Yeah. But. Anyway, it, it freaked him out because he was thinking this whole time that this was a fictional story, a fictional version, right? Which is exactly what it is. I mean, like, mm-hmm. the main bad guy, the, 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 the boss's name is, uh, you know, St. Martin. Definitely not a Mexican name, right? Um, so he, his agent calls my manager and says, Danny's out. Like, now I'm having a heart attack. Why? oh (laughs) jeez why is he out because he you know you guys said this was fiction now we're finding out with this new document that this is actually real and he can't he doesn't want to do anything and so we're sending the money back so we had to pay danny in advance unlike all the other actors we pay later right Mm -hmm. so we paid it you know and he hadn't done anything yet so i'm having a heart attack and i called my manager and i said wait a minute he, he's confused that like he's reading this document wrong I don't know he's I don't know but give me I, I, I gotta get on the phone and like at least give me a chance to explain and um so my manager talks to the agent they agree to ha- do a conference call and um I so I basically wipe like everything in my day because I he's only available at a certain time so so I get on the phone and grant you, granted, like we're going into production like in three days now. OK, so I get on the phone with him and the very first thing Danny Trail says to me, and I've never spoken to him in my life, is so I can't be in your movie. That's how it starts. And within 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes, when the phone call ended, not only had I changed his mind and he, I, he agreed to be in it, he literally ended the phone call saying, Great, we're all on the same page. Let's have lunch, and then his agent hung up on me <laughs> <laughs> because his agent did not want me to have lunch with him. you know. But um, of course. <laughs> but basically, I explained the whole situation. Like this was a document that I was designed specifically for one actor to help him understand the role because he had some reservations and some concerns, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I sent it to you because I thought it would help, um, and then he explained that. It has to be fiction. And when I explained the example of like, this is a fictional version of Mexican Mafia, kind of like Sons of Anarchy. um, He said, you know, and then he went into this thing about Edward James Olmos and American Me and how when Edward James Olmos, who starred in that film, American Me is a Mexican in the Mexican Mafia in a prison. Um, that apparently the Mexican Mafia didn't really like the way that a lot of things were depicted in that film and that there was an assassination uh, um, decree, you know, put on Ed- Edward James Olmos' life. And, you know, I don't know all the details surrounding that. I don't know, you know, whatever happened with that. Obviously, he was never killed, but that's pretty serious for an actor in Hollywood to have, uh, be a marked, yeah. You know, because of something they were doing know in a movie and so uh the long short of it was that danny Trejo was like i can't be involved in anything that is real when it comes to the mexican mafia you know i'm mexican i was in san quentin i was in prison you know literally i don't remember how many years but he literally was in prison for you know like 10 years of his life He's like, it has to be fiction, and I said, don't worry about it. It is fiction. It is fiction. It is fiction. Like it's totally fiction. We're good. It's all good. So, um, so anyway, like I think I, I covered all those questions. You know, they were all kind of connected, but it was definitely like of all of the things that could go wrong in a in a movie. You know, a lot of things can go wrong, and you're you know you're really just problem solving all the time. Um, the biggest the biggest stuff was all in the casting, you know, getting the actors, losing the actors, getting them back, um, you know, uh, finding a new lead, all of that stuff. But in the end, it, we, we, you know, we, uh, we had everybody, everybody showed up, everybody, uh, you know, were well, they were all prepared. We had no uh, rehearsals. Everything was, you know, uh, um, they're, them doing their job, showing up on set, and, you know, I call, me calling action, and we went. We, we immediately started shooting, because we only had, Danny trail for four hours. That was part of the deal, too, because we couldn't afford more than
0: that. <laughs> Man, four hours. I mean, f- filming, yeah. you know, trying oh, to yeah. film all of his scenes in four hours. Because I've been on sets before, and sometimes, you know, a 10, 15-second clip can take an hour to film because you just oh, have yeah. to do so many takes and the setup and breakdown and calling cut and having to be like, oh, no, I want you to do this instead and, you know, making small changes. So, to get you know to get do all that filming with him in just four hours—that's oh yeah that's it was quite it was a stressful. feat.
1: Yeah, I had to reorganize the entire shooting schedule because of that. Um, and you know, it, I really had to make sure that that um, we had things down clockwork, you, you know, because um, we couldn't. We just literally couldn't. Have, and the, the contract that we signed was four hours for this amount which is what we could afford but if we went over then we were going to have to pay more and i knew we couldn't afford the more and so i so there was no option like it it was only four hours this is the only possible way we could get it through so here's another little little anecdote you probably would enjoy so i'm on set and we're rehearsing the scene with jack cross and dutch in the kitchen before Danny arrives because I wanted those two I wanted everything to be blocked I wanted everything to be ready I wanted at least those two actors to have a little bit of time to rehearse with each other and then we had to stand in for Danny while they were doing that partly because I knew when Danny gets there he's gonna go straight to makeup uh, and costume and then come right to set and then we're gonna we're gonna immediately start shooting because time was of essence. so we're I'm, I'm rehearsing with these guys. Uh, my first AD comes up to me and says, "Danny's here. He wants to. He wants to talk to you." And I said, "Okay, great. You know, tell him five minutes." So I go and see him, and he's in the trailer um, with his driver and my producer Chase Cooker, and I enter. And Danny, the first thing he says now is, um, "So I'm going to be leaving early." <laughs> <laughs> And, and then I smiled, and I looked him straight in the eye, and I said, um, well, actually, Mr. Trejo, we have you for four hours from 2 to 6, so we'll be getting you out at 6 o'clock. And I said it very nicely, very professionally. And then he looked at me, and he said, well, I have another event in San Bernardino tonight. I need to leave early so I can make that event. And I said, well, I, I understand you have other commitments, other events, but you know we have you locked in for four hours. And um, I guarantee you, we'll get you out, uh, but we'll have you until six o'clock. So we'll get you out at six o'clock. Then my producer, then he looked at me. And he's, I think, I don't know if he was pulling like I'm a big Hollywood celebrity thing, or if he's just sort of testing my uh, my control of my set. I'm not sure. Maybe it was both. But then my producer said, "Okay, Mr. Trail, we'll get you out at 5. And I didn't even look at Chase. And then I, and then I looked back at trejo and i said actually no we'll get you out at six and then um my producer said well maybe 5 and i said no we'll get you out at six and then my producer said five forty-five. and then i said okay we'll try our best to get you out at five forty-five, but probably six and then i shook sugar- <laughs> it <laughs> yeah and so ed- anyway we what's so so hilarious is uh you know he showed up incredibly professional, totally prepared. And I had full respect from him. And I think that might've been a test to see like, you know, who is this guy? Uh, you know, how, how is he going to handle his set? Um, is he in control? All that could have been, I don't know. Yeah. Try to um, get a
0: feel for it for you and your, you know, your, your comfort. Right. But I mean, I, he's much,
1: he's certainly a celebrity. I am not, but during those four hours I'm in charge. You know, absolutely. So he tested me. And and I didn't even really think about that. You know, that's just was my natural reaction. And then later, later, Chase told me at the end of that shooting day, he's like, you remember when we were in the trailer with trail? I'm like, yeah. And he started laughing. I said, why are you laughing? He's like, the way you were talking to him, it it was amazing. Like you were totally respectful. But you know, you were not backing down. There was nothing about him that threatened you. you. You were in complete control of that situation. And that was impressive. What's really funny, too, is uh, I had said at the end of that real brief interaction, like, maybe we'll get you out at 545. I wrapped him exactly at 545. You know, so 15 minutes early. I was four hours. And then he he had so much fun with us that he actually sat down and ate dinner with us with his shirt off. And then he hung out with us until like seven. <laughs> so
0: like- <laughs> it sounds like, uh, it sounds like it might've been a bit of a, a test then on, uh, on his part. Cause I mean, in any business, not whether you're an A-list celebrity or a business person or a, an athlete, if you're paid, if you're, you know, booked to be somewhere, you know, for a certain amount of time, you're being paid for that amount of time. You can't just be like, Oh, I'm going to leave early and still get paid for all this. Like, you're booked for a certain time. You need to be there for that certain time.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, his later his driver because he did stay. I mean, he was scheduled to be there from two to six. He didn't leave till about seven. Uh, so obviously there was a little bit of BS in what whatever his presentation was. But then his driver later had told my wife that, "Hey, you guys are running a really tight set. Great." vibe you know I haven't been on a set that that, that is this good and guy can't remember and he and Danny uses the same driver for everything and he said one of the things that Danny gets irritated with is you know um, most people they don't rap on time they go long and then he ends up having to stay longer and not only did you know you have everything ready it was a, a really positive vibe you have a, you're running like a you know it was clockwork and you got him out a little bit early that's why he he was hanging out because he was hanging out with us and taking pictures with everybody and he said if he's irritated he'll just bust out of there and get you know get the hell out as fast as possible but he was having a a good experience and you know that's testament to how you've run your set and and how prepared you were and that goes back to like when I was saying about writing you know directing is the same uh directing is 80 percent of it is preparing for principal photography you know i mean like all of that everything you're doing to prepare for that day and there will be things that are unexpected there will be a shot that you're not going to get or there'll be you know some maybe the weather won't cooperate or or you know a generator doesn't work or whatever it is but if you're if you're totally prepared then you're going to be able to handle those uh those unexpected challenges way easier than if you're not Totally prepared, and I think a lot of people they, you know, they there's just a lack of preparation in in all aspects, not not just in filmmaking, but in lots of different industries as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the more, I mean, that's why there's especially for the film industry. Like that's why there's pre-production. That's why you storyboard things, you block things out. You know, you get things ready before it's necessary, so that if things do go wrong, or if they don't go wrong, like you know, you've got everything ready to go. That's why pre-production is so key. Oh, yeah, it's it's the most important thing,
1: you know. I mean, my first AD, uh, who is a lot more experience than I do, you know, uh, because as a first-time director, you know, th- this is literally my first time, right? I mean, um, uh, but anyway, afterwards, she had said, you know, my God, I have never – I've been on lots of sets and worked with lots of directors, and you know, I've never been with a director more talented than you. You had – every single shot memorized in your head. Like I had this notebook, or not really notebook, but a binder in my hand like the whole time, but I never looked at it, cause it was already, it literally it was all in my head. And I knew, I already knew like, okay, that's the shot. And I was always a step ahead all the time. And so she's like, I feel like I, I didn't even need to do anything. Cause you know, as a first, as a first idea, one of their major requirements is making sure we stay on time. Mm-hmm. And I was always wrapping the shot or finishing the shot and getting to the next shot like two minutes before we needed to every time. So we both not, we shot everything in two days, which is a lot considering we were in like four different locations. We had uh, a drone shot over the cityscape. We had two driving sequences, one at night, one during the day. We also had uh, a complete company move from the house location to the cemetery location. And we, we are because we're doing driving sequences we had to incorporate the los angeles uh police department so we had like uh uh police motorcycle cops uh you know uh, um in front and behind the drive car um all of that in two days which is incredibly ambitious and i rapped early both nights
0: that's that is definitely a testament to your uh to your planning skills and your directing skills because yeah that's that's insane <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I knew because I knew what I wanted. So like, yeah, there were times when we would have to do three, four or five takes. But, you know, there was a few where we got it in one take and then it's like, OK, we got it. Why are we going to do it again? There's no reason. Move on. And miss what yeah. we did.
0: nice. <clears throat> so I'm just curious uh, before we, you know, wrap things up too much. Uh, I'm just curious to get your your thoughts on what was like directing for your first time. And especially since, you know, it's it was such a quick production, and you went through so much uh, fun stress uh, getting it already. Just I'm curious what you what your takeaway from the directing for your first time was.
1: It was actually not stressful at all. That like like you know what I already explained about the whole casting, everything getting up to it. That the the two the one full week, the seven days prior to, to our first you know day of photography was a nightmare. Like I, I wasn't sleeping. I, 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 think I probably lost like 10 pounds, just stress, you know? Um, but, but I, w- I am, I was so organized, um, that once we were there on set and, and everybody was doing their jobs and I'm really good at not, I'm not a micromanager. I'm, I'm really good at surrounding myself with the best talent and then trusting them. And you know, I'm also really good at listening with understanding. So I will listen. I want, won't always agree, but I always listen first. And then if I disagree, I'll say I total out, you know, I'll acknowledge that point of view. And I'll say, that's a really good point. I hear where you're coming from. There's some validity here, here and here. I agree with that. However, we're going to do it this way because uh, and here's why. But, um. Uh, yeah I wasn't stressed out at all and and I and I think you know it, it starts from the top if you create a, a sense of calm everybody else feels more calm you know I mean you're everyone's looking to you and um, I also have uh, as far as like outside of filmmaking when I when I wasn't making films I, I had a family you know three children a, a, mar- a marriage a, a mortgage all these things financial responsibilities so I'm a uh, a professor. Uh, so you know that's my day job, and so for twenty years as a professor, I had a lot of experience of you know being in a leadership role, managing uh, a class, um, uh, learning how to interact with with uh, students. You know, with with empathy and understanding, and so I think that those skill sets. Um, help a lot when you're running a set because by no means um, was I an equal to anyone and nor are you as a professor but at the same time I wasn't any I didn't carry myself like some totalitarian leader that is egotistical and completely un, unreasonable you know um, so I think that everybody felt validated I think everybody felt like they had a voice I I feel like I was able to as a director, it's your job, number one, to have a vision. Number two, to um, inspire everyone to not only understand and share that vision, but to uh, become passionate about what their role is to to manifest that vision. And so um, I was really good at that. You know, uh, I, I really feel like I was in my, completely in my element. Like this is the kind of thing I'm meant to do. As much as I love writing, one of the things about writing that I think is so uh, rewarding is that you can literally put pen to paper and you can decide on an idea and you know, much later after lots of things, like especially money, (laughs) um, it can happen. And that is a really amazing feeling of of uh, of power, you know, to be able to 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 create something out of your imagination and then and then it's manifested later. But I'm but I'm not an introvert. And so there are times when I'm even as much as I love writing, I get a little bit I I crave human interaction and I crave the uh, collaborative nature of filmmaking that you don't get when you're sitting alone in a room. Um, and so that was very rewarding to have, be around lots of other creative people, uh, whether it be costing or, or, or makeup or, or, or art direction, whatever it was. And you know somebody coming up with, hey, like our art director, for example, James Preston, he decided that we should have um, a, a board in the torture scene uh, that the nail gun um, shoots a nail into, that was what was written in the script, but he decided that we should paint it red. And before he even explained it to me, I already knew. And I was like, yes, absolutely. Red is a symbol for caution. This is a cautionary tale. There's a reason why it's little red riding hood instead of little yellow riding hood. And that's literally what I told him. And when I said that to him, You like his eyes got big because he totally was like, wow, this director totally gets what it is that I'm doing here by painting just this one piece of wood red and and why it matters.
0: Yeah, it's the little details that really just can stand out and really just have impact, even if people don't like, you know, like see it and think like in their heads like, oh, that's because this like you just see it and kind of like subconsciously like you just kind of get it.
1: Well, yeah, all, all the best stuff I tell my students, because I teach screenwriting and advanced screenwriting and motion picture film analysis, uh, film is literature. And I tell my students, I said, um, as an example, music. How do you know music is good? And they don't know. And, I, and then, you know, somebody might. But if nobody answers, I'll explain. Like, you know it's great when you don't notice it. Yeah. Whenever, whenever, like, when you don't notice the dialogue, it's good dialogue. You know what I mean? When you when you don't notice the music, it's a good music. When you, when you don't notice the art direction, then it's excellent art direction because it's all there. Everything is being done to uh, all those details, whether it's you know sound design or score or uh, you know whatever, whatever it is, it's all there to enhance the narrative. Absolutely. And if, and if you're pulled out by music or by some weird object. That is bad because you're now not focusing on the narrative.
0: Right? Well, like I, like I was, like I told you uh, before we started the podcast and our little discussion. You know, i I started out in the world of VFX, and they, we always say the biggest compliment is when nobody notices your work. Right. 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 <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which
1: is so weird to tell somebody that's not in it. Like they're like, "Well, how is that a compliment?" But it. But it, if you understand it really is because you're there to to help like the music without if you watch a film without music it doesn't work right yeah if you were to watch anything without the vfx it's not you know that needs vfx uh, or vfx that's done properly it doesn't work right
0: yeah You, you just see like oh that looks terrible like oh there's a wire right i can totally see the wire the guy's hanging from or like oh i can totally see the guy in a green screen suit you know waving the flag it's like if you see that stuff, then it's like, oh, that's terrible. But if you don't notice any of the visual effects, that's when you know the visual effects are good.
1: Right, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, and so, I, you know, I, and I think it, it's weird. Like, I kind of have done things a little bit back, you know, not backwards, but um, I wouldn't say backwards, but just maybe a little differently than a lot of other uh, filmmakers. So, um, you know, most people will go to film school like I did, and then they start their career. They work as much as they can um, because you know you never really know when that next job is coming. And then when things sort of you know they work in their 20s and their 30s, maybe into their 40s. And then when things their career starts fizzling out, then they go into academia. Um, and they have lots of credits, you know, and they're established. And then they become professors of film or whatever. I did the opposite um, because I decided I wanted a family, and um, I also recognized that I. Uh, When you try to do everything all at once, you end up doing everything poorly. And I decided that, you know what, my my creative endeavors as a filmmaker can be put on the shelf for a while because I really want to be here for my kids. And I was I was home every day. I I picked all my kids up from school every day. I was a soccer coach for six years. I, I did all that stuff. But I'm only 44. And, you know, I look to people like Clint Eastwood, you know, he's Almost ninety, and he's still making films. Oh and yeah! Very exciting because my girls are twenty-one. They don't need me anymore. They're they're little mini adults. They're working and doing their own thing. And now I can be totally selfish professionally. And I don't say that in a negative way. I say that in a positive way. I don't. I'm not sacrificing time at home with my kids because. I've already put in all that time and the dividends are already paying back to me. Um, and so I can now spend 10, 12, 14, 16 hour days working towards um, you know the craft that I love and I won't feel like I am you know I'm I'm sacrificing some other thing. Um, so I feel like even though I'm kind of is maybe not the uh, this the standard approach to a career um in, at least for me I feel like it was really the, the the wiser decision to wait until and do one thing at a time because I don't really think we're very good at multitasking as a species I think we're you know we actually are pretty good at at staying on the trail and and getting from point a to point b and focusing on you know one thing and doing it well but you know our society tells us differently
0: for sure no, I completely agree with that. And I'm glad you had such a great time uh, directing your film. So uh, what would you say is uh, is next for you? Are you going to maybe start another project? Or are you going to focus more on getting you know the fixer into the full-fledged feature? Or what do, what do you see next for you?
1: Well, actually, I have two things. Uh, one is definitely the feature. Um, I'm in the process of completing uh, the feature theatrical feature version of the fixer. Um, the short film that you saw, I think I explained this, but I don't know, uh, is really, uh, the, the second part of the first act. So you, as you had said, when we started the podcast, you had said, you know, like I saw, the, I saw it last night and I, I just as I was getting into it, I wanted, I ended, I wanted more. And that's the whole point. You know, that, that is exactly how you should feel at the end. Um, and it's, designed to end at the end of act one which is the lock-in of your characters um what people don't really you know people can't necessarily articulate this but um a movie is does not the narrative of a movie does not start in minute one or page one the narrative of a movie starts on minute 30 or page 30 and and when i say that i just mean the end of act one the narrative of the film is really the second act OK, and so what the short does is it sets up that lock in point where your the main character has no option but to move forward. They, there is they have gone through a threshold that door has slammed behind them. It is locked. They can't go back to their status quo. Their old life is forever changed and they have no choice but to move forward as as horrible as that forward might be. Um, so. So I'm doing that. I'm finishing uh, the feature of that as The Fixer is still going through the film festival circuit. Unfortunately, due to the coronavirus, um, you know, COVID-19 is, is has thwarted a lot of the festivals. Um, we were going to have our Los Angeles premiere at the Beverly Hills, uh, the 20th anniversary of the Beverly Hills Film Festival in early April. That has been canceled. A lot of the other festivals that The Fixer was going to screen at at international festivals have been canceled, um, but that's not stopping me from you know completing the feature, and I feel really fortunate that at least we were able to screen at Mammoth before, you know, the coronavirus happened. Um, the other project that I am in pre production on is a a sci fi series television series that I created, I co-created with Chase Cooker, um, called Light. And Light is a sci-fi action crime series uh, set in a post-apocalyptic dystopian world where society is subjected under corporate tyranny. And the main character is, uh, his name is Declan Knight, and he's a mole in a criminal syndicate struggling with his allegiance to the fascist regime that he works for. Um, kinship with his crime family in the underworld um, and also his resolve to fight for freedom and so what I'm doing with that is I've already written the pilot script I already have a series Bible uh, my managers have taken it out to a lot of places including bad robot Bad robot loved it um, they didn't green light though because they already are working on a not a not a similar, narrative but another sci-fi kind of thing and so they didn't want to take on two sci-fi things understandably um but what what i'm doing is putting together a proof of concept short film similar to what i did with the fixer and this is um a shorter abridged version of the pilot script for light it will be about you know depending on post-production i would say between 18 to 20 minutes long um pilot script is about 60 pages um and so we already have a budget we already have most of it cast we already have all of our locations we have um, a uh, a lot of our props are being custom designed um i last friday had a four-hour meeting with our prop guy um jim logan from logan props and so all that's moving forward uh, but again, coronavirus happened. <laughs> so it is moving forward, but but we're kind of, you know, everything is on halt. Um, and, you know, we, we everybody that's understandable. Everybody kind of has to just adjust week by week. We might have originally we we're going to shoot in early June. That probably will be pushed later in the summer because of what is happening with our you know with this health crisis but yeah i'm super busy uh writing the fixer feature script and in pre-production for the proof of concept light for the sci-fi series i created
0: nice well you sound to be doing pretty well and keeping busy so but uh we do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today and tell us about yourself the the film and all the fun that you've had uh getting it off the ground so thank you for talking to us
1: Thank you. It's my pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Speaking with Michael just goes to show how much work goes into making a film and how much can go wrong. In the end, he got it all done, and the film is great. I can't wait to see the full film when it's officially done and released. Thanks for joining us. And, Michael, any last words for our listeners before we go? Hi,
1: I'm Michael Schelf, writer, director of The Fixer, and you're listening to GeneBookNerd.com.